Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the 250th episode. So first and foremost, I want to thank everybody out there for spending your valuable time with me. It means the world. And if we're talking about value, there's no better place to shoot my 250th episode than the bank of the future with my man, artist extraordinaire, the legend, Mr. Peter Tunney. Hi. Hi, Peter. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Happy to have you here at the bank of the future where the future ain't what it used to be, it's better. And we're hoping for a better future. We're hoping for a better future. So hope is all we have. That's what we hold on to. That's what I, that's what I do. I'm a dealer of hope, bro. I had the pleasure of visiting your New York City gallery back in September. Um, your, your fine gentleman over there, Ethan, gave me the tour. And there was a piece that stood out to me. A piece, it was a blueprint from your pillaging of the Taj Mahal yeah. that you found in the, in the business manager's office, right? There were the racks of the blueprints yeah. there and printed on it. Well, they actually have a blueprint room with like a hundred flat file drawers with stacks of blueprints. It's a lot of blueprints. And there was a phrase on there that stood out to me. It said, expectations are the blueprint for disappointment. How does Peter Tony manage expectations in life? Put them all the way down to the bottom. Just turn the dial down. It's like volume on your speaker. I like to drive with it at 10. My expectation dial is on zero. I might even be operating in negative expectation world these days. I could have gotten negative like, I think I'm going to get in a car accident. I think my kids will get hurt. I think the world might be in a lot of trouble. Things could get hairy any minute. There's a great uh, expression, it's an Irish one, it says, the only way a good Irishman can enjoy any success is if he's just certain tragedy is lurking right around the corner. And that's how I really feel. And I felt that way my entire life. I always felt like something is just about to go terribly wrong. I mean, when I'm like five, I felt that way. I don't know why I felt that way. I always felt that way. And I like to lower my expectations. I mean, Art Basel is a great example. How so? Well, everyone is like, oh my God, Next week is our puzzle. Tomorrow is our puzzle. You know, this is our puzzle. Oh my God, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., our puzzle. You can open the gate, it's going to be raining, and not one fucking person is coming through. That's what's going to happen. By the way, that is what happened, right? So I, I don't have expectations for our puzzle. I've been preaching to my whole team, which is a lot of people right now. It's like over 100 people in the walls. Um, do not wait for our puzzle. Don't you dare wait for anything. This is three weeks ago. I said, our puzzle is today. Today is your Art Basel. If you can't do what you're thinking of doing on Thursday, December 1st today, just go home and get another job because today is the day. And it really is. I mean, we did business before that. We set stuff up. 
People want to wait until it's done being set up. I like the setup. I mean, this bank took me like three months to build it. I've had people in here every day for three months. So let's talk about the bank for a moment here. Let's go back to expectations. Let's keep going with expectations. You don't have to lower your expectations. You can just suffer. It's a choice. It's a choice. You lower your expectations. That is a direct correlation to your overall happiness, well-being, spiritual condition, and the amount of hope that you believe exists in the world. That is all I'm really concerned about for me, my kids, for you guys, for every person that I'm in touch with, which is a lot of people. You know, people come to me with people come to me with really gnarly shit in their life. You know, like this is this is more like a reminds me of like in the peanuts, like when Lucy is given psychiatric help for five cents. You know, are you the Winwood Walls therapist, the resident therapist? I'm I'm the wizard of Winwood. The Wizard of Winwood. Wizard of Winwood. And you know, in The Wizard of Oz, someone gave me that name. I kind of like it. In The Wizard of Oz, if you recall, the wizard in real life before the hurricane, before the tornado, was a snake oil salesman on the side of the road with his tipped over cart, right? He became the wizard. So Dorothy goes to the wizard. She's looking for courage and brains and heart. And he gives her an impossible task, you know, kill the witch, bring back the broom, and I'll give it to you. She does it all. She brings it back. And he's like, listen, I'm so sorry. I'm not really a wizard. I'm, so, I'm just a dude with a, with a green screen, and I can't give you those things. She's like, are you kidding me? You, you promised them, and we cut you the broom. How deliver. He's like, well, okay, we'll have a ceremony. And he gives the lion the plastic um, medal of honor or something like that, right? Some courageous medal. And the thing is, it worked. The lion was like, wow. When they give the scarecrow the diploma, he goes, E equals MC squared. He's he's got a brain. And so I literally give out plastic courage. It's my little replica of the billboard I have in New York courage. So I give that out daily. So I'm literally giving out plastic courage. But the point of it is it works. When you leave, you'll embrace courage more. So I'll take the wizard. And, and Peter, you, you make me feel good. You make me feel confident. You make me feel happy when I think about what you do for the community. We did that your philanthropic causes, which we'll get to in a little bit. But um, everyone, you can go back and Google the shit out of Peter Tani and get his whole story. But right now we're sitting in the bank, the bank of the future. And you live the bank of the past. How has your relationship with money changed from your days on Wall Street to your days now? We heard you talking, sorry, we heard you talking shop before. We're not going to get into that, but you were all business, man. How has your relationship with money changed? Well, um, I'm probably a hair more responsible and respectful of money than I used to be. Uh, If you have a lot of money and run out, when you start to get a little back, you're a little more careful. You know, that's the track that you're on, right? I always say in New York City, like, you're not a made man in New York until you're crushed into dust, totally penniless, demonized, and then come back with your head held high. Then you're a made man in New York. So um, I feel a little differently about it. However, apparently, according to everyone else, I still do a lot of dumb shit with money and spend money on irrational projects, which I happen to love to do. I mean, one would be the place you're sitting in. Why I love rational? this project. What's irrational about this? Well, yeah, exactly. That's right. Now, I, in fact, I think it's brilliant and I love it and it makes me happy and giddy. And I just love sitting in here at the bank. But, you know, people say to me all the time, um, yeah, but what's your, 
what's how do you monetize? What's the economic model? And I generally don't really think about that, to tell you the truth. I think more about if you build it, they will come. And then let's see how well you build it. And we'll see who comes. And then we'll see if they buy anything. That's a lot of people logical. come but don't buy anything. I'm looking around the gallery. I'm seeing a lot of new pieces here. Very familiar with the Tiny Money Project. What are we looking at right here? Yeah, so you know what you're looking at right here? You're looking at like the manifestation of probably a 30-year-plus dream. I've always wanted to do this. I've literally always wanted to do it. It's, it's really a, a kind of a good question that I haven't really answered this way, but it blends two worlds, you see. My fascination with money from an early age, I really was fascinated with like counterfeiters, right? Like when I was a kid, we used to draw on a little piece of paper, the number one, in like a green colored pencil to make it look like a $1 bill. And I put the corner of that one in with two other ones and gave it to the ice cream man as $3 and he kept it. He did come back a little later and say, what the fuck? It was bullshit, right? <laughs> I got away with it, right? It was a great thrill. The money blocks are kind of like that. It's having your own currency, but it's about like an alternative currency that you made up out of your mind, right? So think of the paintings like that. The paintings are forgeries. These are for, I paid someone to make these forgeries. And they're oil paintings, and they're in the sizes of the paintings. So I wanted to take really good oil paintings and do irreverent shit to them. That is what I want to say. So, like, that's not really a great art world thesis or anything, but it's my thesis and I love it. Well, I mean, let me just go back for a second. I spent time back a couple of months ago in Pittsburgh. I had an opportunity to tour the Warhol Museum, and I truly understood how he borrowed other people's arts. You take some of that here and there, and you put your own spin on it. Is that what we're seeing here? I mean, for sure. You know what Picasso said? Amateurs appropriate, masters just steal. And, uh, but I'm not stealing anything. I'm paying homage to. I mean, all this stuff is public domain. There, you know, there's all this kind of stuff out there. I mean, you go to the art fair today. Ten people sent me pictures today. You know, the Monopoly riffing, guy. Well, no, riffing on Vermeer, riffing on Van Gogh, um, riffing on Surratt, riffing, riffing, riffing. People, Damien Hurst and Jeff Koons, still riffing on Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, and everyone's riffing on that. And so there's a lot of that riffing out there. Um, when I walked in here before I touched these paintings, these paintings hanging on this wall, interestingly for me, give me 99.9% .9 the same mojo as the real painting. That Matisse painting came into my life in 1984. I think it was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They had a show there called Treasures from the Hermitage and Pushkin Museum in St. Petersburg. And that was one of them. That's really like the beginning of cubism and opening up the canvas and it's Matisse. And it looks like a simple painting. It's really a masterpiece. I just love living with that painting. In fact, I have a poster of the goldfish that I lived with for a long time. Um, and I love that. I get a lot out of that. I get the information. I get the breakout. I get that you're seeing the goldfish this way and this way and that way and the other side. And it delivers to me what I'm looking for. The, the pool room in the night cafe delivers to me what I'm looking for. What you don't know is in this, uh, ca this is called Cafe at Night, Vincent Van Gogh, is I used to live in that room right there. I lived in there. I lived in this Van Gogh painting in my lifetime. And so I love this painting. There's so much nostalgia for me. It's incredible that you get to live it through your art. There's something I haven't shared with you. 
Did I answer any questions yet? No, we don't. That, okay. that wasn't even the plan. All right, yeah, all right. There's something that, that went, the moment I truly connected with you, when I came down in February with my daughter to the opening of the Tiny Money Project, you took her by the hand with a hundred other people clamoring for your attention who wanted you, your time. But you took my daughter by the hand and you showed her around and you taught her the magic and you showed her the tricks. What is, I mean, that's, that's your essence. And that's what I, that's what I was like, fucking love this guy over here. You know, don't be fooled. Um, <laughs> you ruined it. Don't be, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to ruin it a little bit tongue in cheek, but you know, in general for me, I would much rather spend time with your six-year-old daughter than the hundred people that are clamoring to ask me the exact same question. And I'm really good with kids, you know, because I am a kid. So I have, for me, that's like a break from the action. You see, it's a way for me to get away. Now, if there wasn't a hundred people there, I probably would have done the same thing. In it was fairness, so because I, I like to deliver to kids. So let's talk, let's talk about fatherhood. You have two children, uh, Sonnet and Art. Mm -hmm. um, Let's talk about fatherhood, how, how that has changed and taken you to the, to the next stage of your life. You mean how that's and taken you to the absolute brink of sanity, <laughs> the abyss of Let's darkness, be real people here. the abyss of darkness, the black hole hopelessness of outer space and your total inability to function or manage anything and realize at the moment my son's head is hanging out of my wife's vagina that my wife has my, my life has just got bananas yes. and I'm showing over my that head. moment that and exact moment they when it hand me the baby and say congratulations Mr. Tunney and I I walk out of the hospital with this baby uh I'm carrying like a watermelon to my car the car seat is not put in properly no one can put the car seat in properly because that's impossible I still cannot put the car seat in properly my wife can and I don't know. I mean, I've got to feed it. Do they give you food like at the pet store? Like, what do you do? Feed them goldfish. So I, I brought the babies home. And I mean, I'm such a fish out of water. I mean, the, the baby world part of it, I learned so much. I mean, there's, I learned about natural childbirth for a while. That was a real crash course. I ended up giving a, like a TED talk on natural childbirth. It wasn't TED. It was something else. But I talked about natural childbirth because I was like Ricky Ricardo. I thought I'd be in the waiting room, smoking a cigar, reading the paper. They say, it's a boy. And I called my friend. Nope. My wife said, that's not what's going to happen. You're part of our team. Hey, everybody. First, I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show was my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster, you're using it for B2B, a B2C. It's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. How did those first couple of months work with a baby, with everything you've been through in life, in your own time zone? Abject terror. 
That's, that's my. Let's be real. That's it. I mean, I could tell you a lot of other stuff. Yes, it was amazing, and he went goo goo, and and I touched him, and I looked into yeah. those eyes, and I had all those experiences. But in my core, it was terrifying. Has your two children influenced or changed your approach to art in any way? Let me spin around. Not really. You know, my art, whatever that is. That is like a freight train coming down an icy mountain. I've gone off the rails. I don't know where I am. People are screaming. I got 50 cars behind me, which are like 50 people that are on my train. Coal and boxes are popping out of them. The, the trail behind me is wagging in the snow. Maybe you lose a car, a couple people. But here I am. I'm sitting on the engine, holding on woo, like a Bronco. I can't drive that train, right? I can't stop the train. I can't pick you up. I pray you get out of the way and I'm coming down the mountain. So that's where that's going. And this is part of that. You know, that's why I made these paintings. I mean, you know, I'm in, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but nobody on my team knew I wanted to do this or the bank of the future was, I mean, he came down he's like, you fucking built it. Like, I didn't know that you were doing, I said, I meant to tell you that. So, um, yeah, that's, um, it, I'll tell you what it does do. It makes me manage my time differently and I become a better artist because instead of sitting around all day, uh, which I don't, not really famous for that, but Definitely. instead of sitting around all day and working at your own pace, I'm always on the clock, right? Because, I mean, if the kids are in town, when I take my kids to work, you would think in that big studio they could play Lego or do something, something and do I can work. However, I cannot get one minute of work done when my kids are in the studio. It's hard to explain. I just can't do it. There's always something, right? So it's, it's helped me to balance things more and um, just given me lots of stuff to think about. And I probably process some messaging that I want to put out there um, because I want to put something out there hopeful for my kids. I don't want to die and have my kids see my painting that says life sucks and you die. So let's talk about legacy for a moment. I was going to hit on this later. When your time comes. The time has come, bro. We're in overtime. We're in overtime. We're in overtime. We're in bonus time. We're in triple overtime. How do you want to be remembered? You've given so much hope. You know, I did the piece. It's a mirror. It says, how do I want to be remembered? Because I think about that. You know, I guess, you know, Tony Goldman at his memorial service it said on the back of his like memorial card which was really beautiful it said the only thing he ever wanted to be remembered as was being a mensch and i feel that way i would say a good father but that's just compartmentalizing i would say good person there aren't any um i think a mensch is a good one i'm going to stick with that i'm going to co-op tony say i just want to go down as a mensch like i was a stand-up guy i tried my best that's i think that's all you can be i don't think there are really any heroes anymore how you do anything is how you do everything that's something that i really try i to may do that painting you got to make a note of that i agree with that well, i agree I, with that i'd like and to be first I, in line I, for a print on that one I, I i preach it all the time i mean you're sitting by your desk and i see like a water bottle on the floor I think, what do you have to do? Go to the mental hospital? Like, how could you, how could you step up and not pick that up? I do everything. I do everything the same. I do it thoroughly and intensely. The other big piece about Peter Tunney and the Peter Tunney experience is your philanthropic side. We had an insanely intense, deep conversation in, in the New York studio. Why are these causes, such as the, the Innocence Project and the Sunny Center, so important and meaningful to you? 
It's really, you know, everyone asks me that. Um, you know, a friend of mine, he and his wife have been on like infant blindness in Africa for like 20 years. And it's just like, how did that come to your life? You know, because a neighbor of his invited him to a dinner. They watched the video and he said, I'll put in $10,000. Then they said, would you be on our board? Would you host a dinner? He learned more. He took a trip to Africa. And then you can't get it out of your system. You experience it. Right? You, 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 you just can't get it out of your system. I've been with Jason Flom the last couple of days. He came right out of, uh, he was visiting someone in Max in like Seattle, Washington. Took him a long time to get here. He was the wrong flights and the wrong this. And he wanted to get to Miami, but he had to go there first. So he went New York, Washington to spend one day with a, someone who's incarcerated that is an innocent person. And I said, Jason, what was this like? He said, it's hard to leave. It's just hard to leave because I'm sitting there talking with this innocent person and I get to leave and he doesn't. And you just feel bad leaving that soldier behind, right? Like, that's just hard. Like, why? Why would he be? Can't, can't you just come with me? Like, we all know he's innocent. It's on the news. Just open the door. Come in. There's just a Boy, that's, I get chills telling you that I could cry. I don't like that. So I, I think now, having unwound all this and thought about a lot of it, that what I'm supporting are my greatest fears. Greatest fear, number one, that I have is being locked up against your will for nothing. Me, my second greatest fear too. is being locked up for something you did, right? And then my next one is, which I've just been on the brink of so much in my life and I've stared into the abyss and I can't, I can't even imagine like, you know, let's just say you had a little panic attack, a little anxiety situation somewhere in your life. Those, that, those minutes and that hour where it's really extreme, where like you're feeling that and I have felt that, imagine some people feel that way all the time. I could just fucking cry. If, you, if it came to you that your kid felt that way because he was bullied at school and he hasn't told you for like six months. In mm. Mm. I, I, I can barely function through that. And so the, the mental health and the incarceration are the things I just have such great empathy for. And I happen to... You know, step into the ring and said, of course I would help. You know, now I'm on so many different things on these, um, on this landscape, all happily. Um, but I will say this, you know, we talk about philanthropy is like giving. I'm, 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 a, I'm a giver, but in these cases, I have received. I could tell you for sure, for sure. I mean, not some false modesty bullshit. Knowing and interacting with the exonerees in the way that I have in my life has not only changed my life, it has given me a complete construct for living that is filled with gratitude. And when you're filled with gratitude, that adds meaning to your life. When you have meaning to your life, you'll have more self-esteem. You'll be more hopeful. You won't be so quick to dive off that cliff, you know? So, um, I mean, just how do you not feel grateful you know, Jason leaving that prison, we were talking about it. And by the way, and then he saw a governor to try to commute a guy who was on death right. row. And then he went to there and then he did this. And then he's taken and just on the car ride. He's on two different calls. Guys calling collect from prison. I didn't even know you could call collect anymore. But you're reversing charge. It's all so dated and so archaic and so draconian and so disgusting and so weird. But just that that's in your life every day. 
how the hell would you not feel grateful? Because uh, I'm guilty, dude. I drove drunk 3,000 times. I just never killed anybody. Never got in an accident. That's, that's not because I'm a great driver. That's because of the grace of God, baby. Yeah, grace you of God, love. Talk for a moment about another project uh, and cause, Christopher Reeve Foundation. Well, well there's uh, the third big fear. Yes. You can't move. So, I mean, I'm sure you, know I'm sure you watch the diving bell on the butterfly. And so when he's on the beach, the way that movie, the way Julian shot that movie, you know, because he could only see a small area, you just see his daughter's feet running on the beach, right? Oh, that is so claustrophobic for me. And so beautiful that you could just see your daughter's feet on the beach right before you die and you're filled with fucking joy. That's all it takes. The little, those little, and, and you know they're there running around. It, it's like an impressionistic dream, you know? So before I met Alan Brown, before I got involved with Christopher Reeve Foundation, um, and having been in a really serious accident where I wasn't paralyzed, but I was highly immobilized, you know, in a cast up to my neck, down to my feet, you can't sit up, you can't move. Me just thinking about that today, like really honestly, if I think about being immobilized like that, I could easily go into like a panic attack of claustrophobia. I, I don't want it. If you told me today, if I got hit by a car walking down the street today, um, I wish I had something. What do I do with money? Um, and I woke up in the hospital exactly like I did when I was 13 and a half. You come around. And after you're lucid and you're out of your whatever state you were in, they say, Peter, it's uncanny. You had an accident just like you did when you were 14. You have a double compound fracture of your femur. You're in a body cast. We're going to have to do 10 operations. You're going to have to lay still like that for the next 14 months. I would fucking kill myself. I don't, I don't know. And everyone says, well, you would. I don't know that I have the equipment for that right now. That's just too much for me. So add that to, I dove in the ocean this morning. That's a blessing of my life. That's how Alan Brown um, got his um, complete spinal cord injury. He was like his 26th birthday. They're on a Caribbean island. And he just dove in the water. But there was like a sand mound thing. He got rolled by the oh. way. He heard the pop. Oh. He will tell you he knew it. They got him. He was looking up at the sky. And he knew that he was going to be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And he just rolled with it. He's had children. He's a quadriplegic. And like, I, that guy rolls into my gallery. I, I mean, some people can't get here from traffic. How the hell does Alan Brown get here? And then he was with Ethan in New York three days before at an event. Like, wow. So that's my third big fear uh, is and, being paralyzed. And, so I got to do whatever I can. And I had the pleasure to meet him. Correct me if I'm wrong. We put paint under his tires and... Yeah, yeah, he helped me paint that. something. That was Listen, awesome. There's, Part nothing, of the there's nothing Alan Brown can't do. And, you know, he had a, an event and, a, and there was people like from the chest up saying, you know, I was a ballerina and now I'm a businessman. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm this. I am that. And then it comes back. You zoom out and they're all in wheelchairs. And it said, don't look at us. See us. Uh, that's kind of what you were saying, right? Don't look at us. See us. And so... You need a little practice. I mean, if you're not in that world, you know, I went to an event with Alan in New York. I went with Ethan. We walked in. We have 30 guys in wheelchairs coming to meet us at the door, one of which was Chuck Close. God bless him, no longer with us. And um, the one guy is a CEO. He told me he went to China 24 times in the last three years. 
I've been trying to get to China for 30 years, you know? But, you're, yeah, but your tunnel's not complete yet. It, it, oh, we shouldn't show them that back room where that it, tunnel goes. It's, it's not. <laughs> and I'm just saying, like, for those guys, what I could tell you is, I think Alan Brown and his crew, as much as any human beings on the world, are massive deliverers of hope. And the idea that you can not only survive your predicament, but you can thrive under any circumstance. And I'm attracted to people like that. I'm attracted to people that are born with massive deformities that are funny and uplifted and like, wow, you want to talk about take it to the bank and cash it. There it is. So it is. I'm super attracted to that and super don't want to be that. You know what I mean? It's like a terrifying thing for me, but it's less terrifying now because if I was paralyzed, I'd have Alan. And he would be walking me through, and I'd be like, I can't believe this shit, Alan. Here we are. And my guess is he says I'd be like him, but I don't know. You are, you are truly a, a dealer of hope. So let, let's bring it home here. For me, for the past 250 episodes, this show has been my masterclass, my personal masterclass, where I get to interview people that I truly love and appreciate. And there's two questions that I ask everybody. And all these questions build up inside of me. And these are my reference points for how I guide my life, what I refer to. Peter Tunney, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you have ever received that you take action on every day? Never leave a good party to go to a different party. And last but not least, Peter, you look back on your life, the good times, many, which I've heard some stories, and the rough times. And you look back when you were at your fucking lowest multiple times at the bottom, broke, poor, strung out, drug out, not confident in the future. And you had to claw your way That's up. That's the understatement of the fucking year, by the way. You know this. <laughs> and you had to dig down deep yep. and harness that inner tenacity and pull yourself up. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, when we sit here today, everything you have created, the hope that you give to everybody, your family, being so full of gratitude. Peter Tunney, what is your focus in life? What is your compass? What is your North Star? You know, I'm in service, bro. That's it. I could cry telling you that. I'm just lucky to be here and in service if I can be. That's it. Peter Tunney, you're a legend. I am grateful and thankful for having you in I'm my a life. a fragile legend. Everybody out there, I want to thank you so much for joining us for the last 250 episodes. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Get your asses down here to Wynwood. Come check out the Peter Tunney experience. Thank you for all of your time. Thank you for joining us. Remember to find out more again at thepodcast.com. Take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.